You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's, it's quite an achievement, I think, to have a regulation change. It should go in your Palmares. Has won race A, B and C and change rules X, Y and Z. Hello and welcome to Faster, the Dr Hutch podcast, supported by Cycling Weekly magazine. I'm Michael Hutchinson, also known as Dr Hutch, and I'm a former pro road rider and national time trial champion. This time, I'm talking to a world championship medalist, time trial national champion, engineer, aerodynamicist, and the man behind the Hoob Watt Bike team, whose serial embarrassing of national squads led the authorities to change the World Cup entry rules specially to stop them. He's also known for being potentially the world's most aerodynamic man. I'm probably 30, 40 watts more aerodynamic than most people I compete against, give or take. And that's just taken years and years and years of focusing on that. And he's one of the very few people in the world of bike riding who can look at the technology from every conceivable angle and bring the understanding of an athlete to all of them. It's just all so intertwined. You need to kind of be holistic about this, that I can't just be an aerodynamicist, I can't just be an engineer, I can't just develop faster drivetrains or better tyres. You need to understand how all that applies to an athlete at the end of the day because they've got to get on the bike and ride. For those of us with an interest in the nerdier corners of the cycling world, Dan Bigham is the man you just can't ignore. A former F1 engineer, he brought a very diverse set of engineering skills into cycling with the initial aim of making himself faster. He succeeded, a bronze medal in the relay at the 2019 Worlds in Harrogate, several national time trial championships and a silver in the 2018 Commonwealth Games individual pursuit. He also used his skills to make others faster. His aerodynamics and engineering underpinned the hugely successful Hoob Watt Bike Team Pursuit campaign that famously saw four housemates from Derby take on the world and win. And he's helped teams like Canyon SRAM and Yumbo Visma in some of the highest profile races in the professional world. He set up the Watt Shop Company, designing and making high-end components. And he's written a very good book called Start at the End about reverse engineering in sport. So given all that, I thought I'd ask him exactly what he thinks he is. Am I? Uh, I like to think of myself as an engineer, first and foremost. I think by training, by interest, by just, I guess, every, every aspect of my life tends to revolve around being an engineer and that cycling, for the most part, tends to sit on the side or at least fit into that. And that's why I got into it, actually. I'm, I'm a cyclist because I'm an engineer and not the other way around. Uh, so I've, I always wanted to work in Formula One and that's where... Where I, well, where I ended up for, for some time before I then realised, actually, I enjoy the cycling far too much and the, the application of everything I'd learned through study and through work was, it was like such a ripe ground for, well, everyone talks about picking low-hanging fruit, but it was just enjoyable to, to find that fruit and, and to use everything that you're taught to, to good effect. Okay. So within that kind of balance... Does being a writer help you? Is it help your engineering Ooh, in the context of cycling? Around. Well, that's, the, that's so. going to be the next. Going to be the next question. <laughs> <laughs> I I do believe so because you have the insight to both sides, and I think that's something that teams and, they, and federations that I've worked with have probably found unique and beneficial about me. That I'm not just uh, not just another engineer coming in. I'm. Uh, somebody who's raced at World Cup level, raced at 
track world champs, raced at road world champs, raced in UCI stage races, understands the demands of a cyclist from their perspective, the stress they go through, sitting in hotels, all the warm-up, all the fitting of a skin suit that takes half an hour to get right, all that kind of nuance to being a rider I've experienced firsthand and can appreciate. But then also I understand the impact of that and also understand the impact of everything that goes with being an engineer. So how much you can gain from focusing on X, Y, and Z and how much that offsets or balances against the additional stress overhead or just the lifestyle of being a rider. So do you think if you turn up to Canyon SRAM, who you work for, or Yumbo Visma, who you, who you work for, do the riders there give you a better hearing for being a rider? Because yes. you know, there's always a tension. I've, I've been at the point where kind of an engineer arrives and says, you need to do this, this. And a rider's almost defensive just because they're dealing with an engineer who's looking at it from another perspective. So it's almost the point where you could say the same thing to a rider that a pure engineer might, but you're just going to get a hearing. Does that work? Yeah, definitely. I think in the first instance with Canyon Shram, that was probably my biggest in because all the the women I was helping were people I was seeing every week at, at track world cups and at class ones and that kind of thing on the track. And they'd seen that what I had done as an engineer had resulted in us going from nobodies to world cup winners in 12 months. So they were like, Oh, that's, that's quite interesting. And obviously it followed the story and that gave me an in, but then you can talk in their terms as well. It's not just walking in and busting about CDA this and what's that because they sort of get it. They they understand it's a term that matters, but they don't understand the sort of the derivations of it and, and what it actually truly means. So you can just talk just generally of like, okay, well, these are the sensations you get and this is how it will change how you race or how fast you'll go and put it into just even like time on a course or the speed increase you'll get in a lead out, that kind of stuff that engineers would just go, well, it's X percent faster or a CDA reduction of 0.005. And you're like, well, that that's great for me. That's awesome. But actually it means absolutely bugger all to a cyclist who most of the time they don't have a, not, I wouldn't say a full edge. They're educated to a good level. And then at some point they often make that, that split of, okay, I'm not going to, to be a, whatever you would go to university to study, they're going to go down the pro cycling route and they do continue to study and have their own niche interests. And I think that's something that I'd advocate for every cyclist to try and have and try and do. But it's, yeah, it's not going to be the same as doing a, a five-year engineering degree. They're not going to have the same level of understanding. And there, I mean, there, are some, there are some riders who, you know, in spite of not having any particular kind of formal uh, background in, in engineering, have a very good grasp of the bits of engineering that affect them. But that's not always enough to make the next step. Because it's maybe when you pull something in from somewhere else, you've got a whole context for it. Yes, I think a lot of cyclists now are doing more research. There's so much good quality, just content out there to try and dig it, into. It must things. just break your heart to see people giving this stuff away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but equally, I do quite enjoy the fact that people are educated. It's a much more enjoyable conversation with a cyclist who's done some homework and understands at least a good proportion of what you're trying to, to talk to them about and then you can often add a bit more as you said context is what matters so that they might have heard oh that yeah cda is important and then they've gone well frontal area okay that that's half of it so we'll focus loads on frontal area and then you can have a bit more of a discussion of how cd and a interact and how that they don't always go in the same direction you can make a change that affects one positively and one negatively and overall what matters is the holistic reduction of cda as a pair uh and then you can show them the derivation because to, be, of to, it. To, to, to be clear for the benefit of any non-engineers who might have accidentally downloaded this podcast the cd <laughs> is one thing and a is another and you multiply them together to get the total drag exactly and that. the 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 a is just the frontal area um and the and cd the is, is the actual shape well. yeah, yeah the shape of it uh and you i mean you can measure them separately it's just much harder to do than it is to measure them together. Uh, well, it's 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 easier to measure them together now. Yes, I give you that. Because that. in the dim distant past, the first the first kind of proper aero research I ever tried to do on myself was to this would have been early two thousands was to take a photograph of myself from head on, print it onto a piece of photographic paper, and cut out everything that wasn't me and weigh it. Mm. And that's that's an A. <laughs> 
And actually, in that era, even with her pixel counts, would have been a, a slightly more sophisticated way to do it, but quite possibly not as accurate. But that, that, that measuring A that way is relatively simple. Measuring CD is, or CDA in that era was very, very hard. So don't knock it. <laughs> oh, I, I definitely won't. You're doing the best you can with the, the tools that you have. And that's something that I think a lot of people sort of forget, that you're just being pragmatic, that you might not have had a power meter or a speed sensor or a head unit to even log the two together. Um, and then let alone where you've got a laptop with Excel and understanding of everything else. There's actually so many levels of understanding to get to that end point of just checking out CDA value. Whereas actually for you, I mean, even a mirror, you can have a mirror and have your partner just draw around the outside and then go, okay, actually, right, let's talk a bit lower and then do the exact same thing again. And there's, there's many ways to achieve it, isn't there? But it's, it's just what you can do in that time period or, or what you have access to really. The biggest change in technology in the last decade or so, if you're a bike racer, has been the ability to accurately measure aerodynamic drag. It was only around about 2009 that wind tunnels got easy to find and affordable to use, and it was a few years after that before reliable track-based systems appeared. Previously, we had a sort of a dark ages, where we all knew how important aerodynamics was, but we essentially had no way of measuring it. I was involved in some early attempts. There was the cutting out of photographs method, which, I'll be honest, it worked a lot better than you'd have expected. Or there was roll down testing, where you just freewheeled down a hill to see how far you ran out on the flat bit at the bottom. Then you changed something, rode back up the hill and tried it again to see if you went any further. When parameters appeared, there were suddenly possibilities for track testing and road testing. The concept was really simple. You just ride at a constant speed, see what the power number is, swap over something like a helmet and do it again and again, and again. On the road, it turned out this was mainly a way of measuring the wind speed and direction and whether any cars overtook you. But on an indoor track, it worked really very well. The biggest downside to the lack of sophistication was that you had to do very long runs, maybe five minutes each, and repeat them several times to try and even out the data. That got pretty tough physically, because you had to do them at around about the speed you were planning to race. And that was the big limitation. It would take three hours to test four helmets and two days to get over the effort. I also once tried to build my own wind tunnel in the living room using cardboard and a big fan, but perhaps the less said about that, the better. 13 or 14 years ago when I started doing stuff with Simon Smart at Drag to Zero, um... With his giant calipers. One of, one of his, his giant <laughs> calipers. I remember reckoning and looking at it, reckoning the giant calipers were about 50% of a wind tunnel. <laughs> you in that wrong. era, when wind tunnel time was sort of six, seven hundred pounds an hour, the giant calipers, they had a lot going for them. <laughs> yeah. And then a big ratchet strap. Okay, right, we've got you into about this wide. And yeah, your CDA is nothing, but... That was yeah. in the one of the Commonwealth Games. I'm actually I'm I, to pick to paint a picture for you. I am under a duvet here. This is a Melbourne 2006 Commonwealth Games duvet, which I am under to try and um, deaden the sound for the benefit of the sound quality. And at this very Commonwealth Games, uh, my teammate David McCann um, got another one of our teammates before the time trial to wrap him in duct tape to get his shoulders in. And he headed off and rode the time trial, I think. Certainly when I left, that's what he was doing. I'm not 100% sure that he hadn't abandoned this little project before he got to the start line. But certainly he was planning to ride that time trial with half a dozen wraps of duct tape to hold his shoulders in. Um, (laughs) I think that's against UCI regulation 1.3.033. Something about uh, changing of body shape. Yes, That's, that's because of people like David. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it, that's it's quite why an that's... achievement I think to have a regulation change it should go in your Palmares has yeah, one I, race I... A, B and C and change rules X, Y and Z um, I was a pioneer of the long sock so I don't know whether I get credit for that didn't, didn't ever use the long though, socks in a yeah I did it was a long time after I started using it which suggests they didn't really mind when I went a bit faster <laughs> um, you've obviously written the book um, which is called Start at the End um, which is largely about the, you know, the application of reverse engineering to you know what you did through Team KGF, who bought bike, and so on. Um, and there's quite a lot of general lessons that you've extracted from that that are aimed, I think, kind of more at a business market really than specifically at a cycling market. It's trying to broaden the market a bit by selling something a little bit bigger. Um, but actually, reading the book, one of the most remarkable things I came to thinking was not the general rules, the general lessons you managed to pull out for it, but 
what seems like the coincidence of there being one guy in the middle of a Venn diagram, which is bike rider, engineer, designer, manager. And in the midst of all these kind of general lessons about reverse engineering and innovation and disruption, there's, it seems very personal to you. I mean, you seem to be very much at the center of this and very, very critical to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do wonder, like, what, what would have been different if we'd had, like, even different people in the team? Because so much of it is about the environment that you're in. And I think I was pushed to be that person, to, to do all those aspects because of everybody around me. Um, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. So I obviously discussed things like doing the washing up in the house, who was who was key to achieving that. Uh, but I think a lot of it was, was Johnny and Tipper and Charlie, at least in the first instance, and their thoughts and their ideas of how we should approach it and what we should look at and who we should, what doors should we be knocking on and um, how do we just create this good culture within the team that means we are going to, sort of push the boundaries but also apply everything that we want to apply because we'd all been in the sport for quite a long while actually I mean if you look at Tipper since probably since he started walking he's been riding a bike and much the same as Charlie Johnny came to it through every sport under the sun of swimming and rowing and uh, has lived with tons of different people but has so many good ideas and I think the fact that we're all challenging ourselves to think about this uh, it's like just one big sort of adventure for what was at least in the first instance oh we'll do it for a year see what happens like max out the credit cards why not um, and then yeah from there it's absolutely snowballed um, I guess in a way we were all critical to that and I, I do often wonder well what happens if, what would have happened if it was just we couldn't get a tipper in or we and we ended up with somebody else what would we have had the exact same result probably not um, I do think in every respect, they all brought something very unique to the party that ended up with this quite cool little cool boiler pot of just disruption and, and pretty awesome ideas. I mean, one of the things that, that interests me again, also about um, KGF and who, what, what do you call that team? I don't know if it's K Team K, K, KGF or who KGF. what bike, because obviously it's changed sponsor halfway through. So. Yeah, um, who bought bike? Okay, who bought bike? That's the problem. Yeah, I think mostly who bought bike. People know it is that. Uh, but yeah, in the okay. First well, we'll, we're, we'll, we're we'll, we'll, KGB, KFC, the lot. We'll we'll call it who bought bike, which seems to be reading out a list of acronyms every time we get to the team. I mean, it's a very small team because you had you started off with a team pursuit squad of four riders. That was the whole team. That was the whole picture. Um, now, the kind of the David and Goliath story is a great narrative. But actually, with a team that small, are there advantages to that degree of focus? Oh, hugely. And I think people started to realise that pretty quickly. That we were, <laughs> Johnny used to poke fun at me because I'd say it all the time that we were small and nimble, but that is exactly what we were. That we, we had one single focus. We weren't a federation who were developing riders for a goal in four, six, eight years' time. Uh, we weren't just going to races because we would go to races. We were going to races with an absolute goal in mind and everything about our life was focused on that, which we're so lucky to be in that situation as, as people and as athletes that we were long enough out of uni that we weren't like, well, just absolutely inundated with debt and didn't have any grounding or business around us to kind of support that. But equally, we weren't so far out of university that we were locked into solid nine to five careers for God knows how long. So we were in that, that lovely little sweet spot um, and we knew enough to be dangerous, I guess. Uh, that, and we had those sort of, yeah, unique ideas that would sort of grown throughout university. I'd had so much interaction with cycling uh, anyway before this had even come up, but not just in the in the traditional sense of riding a bike, but behind the scenes with people like Simon Smart. So I'd, I'd worked with Simon for... Uh, how long, six months or so, something like that, uh, and done a little bit of work as well before that in his wind tunnel, just being a test dummy. Uh, I'd obviously done a fair bit through all the motorsport side with Formula One. I'd done quite a bit with British athletics and with British swimming, and I'd seen elite sport and elite setups and what was good about them, but also what was bad about them. So I was fairly well formed in the ideas of how to approach high performance, at least from how I felt it should be done. Um and then, yeah, kind of being given the perfect opportunity to have one single focus and one single goal and then have all these contacts and network to rely on and to jump on and maximize was pretty unique. If you talk about reverse engineering, when I first heard that that's what the focus of the book was, my first thought was, oh, yeah, that's kind of basically industrial espionage. 
it's not actually what you mean by reverse engineering. You're talking about taking reverse engineering as we need to achieve X, so let's work our way backwards from, you know, say we... I mean, it, it's a bit like when British Cycling running into um, an Olympic Games will have a target for a team pursuit. They'll say, you know, we need to ride 348 flat to win a gold medal in Tokyo or whatever target they've picked, and they work their way backwards from that. So it's that kind of reverse engineering... But anyway, the first time I heard it, I thought, ah, yeah, industrial espionage. Dan has written a book about nicking intellectual property off other people. I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, However, to move to the question, is espionage part of the package if you're doing what you're doing on a low budget? I mean, we did that did get mentioned uh, in the book, uh, the whole stealing of jerry can ideas, uh, although... Yes, it was espionage. Is it is it critical? I think you'd be naive to ignore the past in cycling because enough. It's that whole yeah. It was just enough people approaching that problem for years and years and years and hitting your head against the wall with a hundred different techniques. At the end of the day, they'll probably find something that works. And at least trying to understand the process that they've gone to to get to that end point, you'd learn a lot on the way. I don't think we copied a huge amount. There were there were some things of around training strategies and in the first instance gearing before we then just went, actually this doesn't really seem to work or make sense or actually let's just try something different because why not? Let's see if it see if we, we go completely left field and, and find some some nice green lands of gains. Um but yeah, I think to ignore your competition would be a bit yeah, naive and a bit silly because they are thinking about the problem, maybe not to the degree or to the at least criticizing of every single aspect that, that we took, but they are still very intelligent people and they've gone pretty damn fast. We're trying to match them. So at least try and learn what they did in the first instance. Um, so in, <laughs> if you go on that basis, how long is it before some young upstart turns up and tells you you're doing everything wrong? Uh, it was pretty quick. And I, I quite like that, actually, because I guess we were super vocal. A lot of people came in and were like, oh, I don't I don't really agree with this. Or I don't really agree with that. I'd, actually, so much of it came from academia, because there's a lot of people who are doing some really cool research and don't find an outlet for it. And they see the glaring flaws in how things are done at elite level because they've just spent three years doing a PhD in it. And then they can't get a foothold at the top level because of how things just are, the, the establishment. And then they came to us and were like, oh, you guys seem to be going all right. Um, we've got some cool ideas around everything from like bicarb strategy around uh, thermal physiology. So uh, preheating and pre-cooling in certain ways, um, just general ideas like that. We just sort of went with it because why wouldn't you, right? You've got these really intelligent people with a ton of objective data saying it's better. And you're like, well, that's a no brainer. Um, Yeah, I think they found it quite rewarding. You're primarily an engineer. You're a team that's always had about you a very strong engineering focus because of you um, and what you were doing. But you've still got to do... I mean, you've still got to train. So how much of the same kind of engineering approach did you take across to to training for the team and actually how helpful is it because engineers do not for the most part make good physiologists <laughs> yeah i think uh, i definitely sit in the same there i'm, I'm not a great physiologist i uh, i understand a fair, fair amount of it but not to the same degree as, as people like johnny and john and, and tipper and that was their big string to the bow especially in the team that they could lead the way on that but also go out and find other people who knew a little bit more about specific areas that were lacking so like Medicordy, Steve Faulkner, Kurt Bergen-Taylor, uh, Lewis Goff, they're all really intelligent people who are keen to just add a bit of a bit of sprinkle here and there to the finer details. I tended to try to maximise my training to gain engineering insight. So one thing I was pushing was basically aero testing in all training sessions. So you are tweaking your training to enable you to still optimise whatever it might be, positional stuff, skin suits, helmets, etc., um, which so not, lot, not, kind of... not a lot of hill wraps then no no definitely not you've got to go fast if you want some good aero data <laughs> um, but it was just one of those sort of efficiency things if we're riding around the track all the time we're collecting a load of data and getting a CDA output for every single half lap it's a bit of a no brainer to then just make a few changes each time uh, it's not super perfect because yes you're training you're, you're not focusing on holding a perfect position you're focusing on 
getting good physiological stimulus, but as long as you strike that balance, it was it was uh, an easy win, really. So, and even then, any kind of training is still conditioned by the fact that you're an engineer. So it's oh, it's almost as if the actual pure physiological elements of training are still subservient to the grand master of aerodynamics. Uh, yeah, there's a rolling joke in in the team and has been for years of like if you find 10, 10 watts of gains, you don't have to train for the next two weeks. Or at least that was their, their poking of fun at me because I definitely didn't train as well as I could have done over the past three years. I think there's so many factors in it, mostly being having to do exactly as you said. You've got a manager, you've got the aerodynamic guy, you've got the sponsor liaison, you've got all the logistical stuff for flights and then hotels and whatever else. Um, trying to do all that and then try and train properly is actually pretty hard. And I don't think I trained properly. And I, I know I didn't train properly because since the team hasn't been training together, COVID and lockdowns and whatever else, I've been able to sit at home and do the training and the recovery I should have done. And lo and behold, I'm 20, 30 watts better off than I was when I was Yeah, because it it's, in, it's incredibly hard to do all of those things at once because every... I mean, one of the things I tell people is that there's no such thing as a non-physical stress. Every kind of stress in life has some sort of physiological manifestation. So, you know, getting stressed about trying to find a hotel for a race somewhere and then sort out a visa and the embassy get back to you and say, oh, you filled in the form, or the form incorrectly. All of that is a stress that goes to training, goes to performance. Um, so the idea of kind of how that combines with what you do, it's quite tough. Yeah, they're just all barriers that you could do without and you try to minimise them. Obviously, you'd be silly not to, but they still get in the way. Like the visa one's a prime example. We we didn't realise we needed a visa for Belarus in the first year. So I ended up, uh, which I think it was like a next day delivery to my, oh, we needed somebody to actually go to London as well. They wouldn't they wouldn't do it by us sending it. They, they needed it hand delivered and hand collected. So I sent it to my friend Sam Calder in London. He tramped across London, went to the, the embassy, waited for six hours to fill it in for me and then posted it back up and it's just an overhead to have to go and figure that out and find somebody to do it it's just one example of many and um, it definitely did get in my head I found it quite frustrating when you see your teammates training better than you but you know there's nothing you can do about it they're going out for a five hour zone two ride and you've only got two and a half hours because you've agreed to have three sponsor calls in the afternoon and you just can't put them off Canyon SRAM, Yumbo Visma, two pro teams that you've worked with. Um, what do you do for a pro team like that? Um, what you know, what are they? What are they? Why do they come to you other than your general reputation as a bicycling genius? Good question. So, in the first instance with Canyon, I think they were quite intrigued. They didn't have like an any engineer sort of aero role in their team, and. Ronnie, Ronnie Lauka, the team manager, manager director, whatever you're going to call him, had basically seen a, a steady downward trajectory in their world team time trial performance. They, they'd won it two or three times, then they were second, second, fourth. And no one likes to be getting worse, do they? It, it just, it's just, it's disheartening. And we were, they were heading into the, what was going to be the final world team time trial as trade teams before the UCI were bringing in the mixed relay. And um, Ronnie wanted to go out on a high. And he thought a bit of a dice roll, but just dropped me a message of, are you interested in, in helping in this project? Uh, it's pretty much open. There's not a scope of, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. It's a case of, we want to win. We want you to tell us how we should win, how we're going to win. Uh, and it was, oh, I'm trying to think. So that would have been in September, 2018. So they approached me in December, January, so 2017, 2018. So we had a good nine month run in. And it was just a case of, Come and come and see the team. Understand how we work, and you tell us how we're going to get fast enough to win. So it's uh, shoehorning a three-day aero test over in Germany. Uh, between, I'm trying to remember, I flew back from the World Track Champs in the Netherlands, went home, repacked my bags, was back in the same airport twelve hours later, flying back out. Then did the three-day camp, flew back to the UK, and then the day after, flew back out to Portugal for a GB camp, as I was on trial for GB at the time. So it was kind of a, a quick, let's cram in three days and just test, test, test across all the riders. They hadn't done any major aero testing full stop and there's a lot of low-hanging fruit just from a positional perspective. But then we could benchmark all of their equipment and realise where the, the gains were going to come. Uh, and then just 
get onto sponsors really for the next few months of right we need to develop this we need to develop that we need to develop the other okay we need to do some team time trial training camps this is how we're going to do it these are the riders we're probably going to use this is how we need to train towards it this is the strategy that i think we should do then start to look at the the actual course itself and pulling apart the best way to ride that course because it's basically 50k point to point so it's so it's it's more than it's more than just aero because most people hear the word dan bigham and they think oh yeah aerodynamics and this is this is a much bigger package it it definitely needed to be aero was part of the problem but i think a lot of it really comes down to execution uh and that's underestimated in the sport of time trialing you'll know pacing is is critical once you fluff your pacing you really realize how bad it can be but conversely the opposite is true as well that if you nail your pacing it can be worth a huge amount and how you execute in a team time trial who who is on the front when and how how do they change how long is their turn how do they get to the back of the line like what is the strategy to get to the back what order or what order are they in yeah all that kind of stuff that not many people had spent much time looking at, but we had nine months to get our teeth stuck into it. And then uh, a good run through where we had, I think it was six days out. We basically rode the course every single day, but I was in the team. I wasn't just in the car. I was on a time trial bike riding with them. So I could see firsthand and feel firsthand if a certain rider's kicking through or surging or someone looks like they're swinging or their line's poor, they're not reading the wind very well or they've ridden the wrong line throughout a roundabout or a corner. And it just meant that instead of someone in a car having an idea because they've seen enough people ride a bike, I was riding it and I could feel that firsthand. Uh, and then the next one was actually just addressing how the team talked to each other because men's teams and women's teams are so different. Men are openly critical of everybody. They're, they'll happily say, look, you did this wrong. We need to sort it out. And I think that whether that's just macho culture or just how, how men are whereas women are a lot more reserved and that they see it as to be critical is to be a bit bitchy and they try not to do it so the approach i took was after every single ride we all sat down we went through the data and i made them go around and say a positive thing and a negative thing about something the team did and they had to be critical and that was forced it wasn't a case of oh you didn't quite do this right it was like this was wrong and then we can sort it out there and then so there was wasn't any sort of lingering issues between riders or um flaws with how we were doing it it was a case of if there's a problem it gets raised immediately and we sort it out and i think they took that quite well because i'm the same age and the same sort of rider as them as well so they they just saw it as just another one in the team asking the same question given the extent of dan's role at canyon sram which is about a lot more than just aerodynamics i wanted to hear about it from their side as well Because after all, the best measure of success when you bring a consultant into a team is not just how fast the team goes in the short term, but whether the riders buy into it and what they can take forwards from it into future races. All of those are pretty big questions, and it's a lot to entrust to one relatively new engineer. So I had quite a long chat with Canyon SRAM director Beth Durea about Dan and the effect on her team of his attempts to maximise each element of performance. Um, I mean, your description of Dan is is pretty spot on. <laughs> he brings a, he brings a lot of things in the in the one package. Um, it was our team manager Ronnie Lauka who I believe he read an article. I'm going to say the Telegraph in the UK. I, hopefully, I correct have uh, corrected got it the correct source. Read an article about Dan uh, and his uh, colleagues then who were aiming to really come into British cycling or come into the the sport of track cycling um, and in a different way, in like traditional sport in a different way. And he read that article and found it really interesting. Um, and the team prior to 2018 had been very successful in team time trials since the reintroduction to the, to the discipline in 2012 World Championships. But in the two years previous to that, had um, not when I, when I say fallen off, um, it was not fallen off com- on but relative standards. Come 2012, 13, 14, 15, dominant wins in every uh, TTT throughout the year, and then at World Championships, and then was missing the top step for the the next couple of years. And so I think Rooney was looking really for for other ways to get back to the top step. And saw this article, saw Dan immediately liked his character and his approach to aerodynamics and to looking at things differently and not being scared to look at things differently and try new things and 
um, approach it with a completely open mind. And yeah, this, this was attractive. So made a, a conversation, made contact with Dan, made a conversation, and then he came into the team. He did the first track testing Frankfurt Oda in I think we say March two thousand eighteen, and that was the first time I met Dan. Also, so immediately you could see that he was yeah he's really spot on but I mean completely passionate like uh, unbelievably over the top passionate about aerodynamics and just testing every fine detail in his own system and yeah so that was the 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 short version of so that was that that was where he came from um what what did you feel as a team that you got from from his involvement I think, I mean, from the first time that we met Dan for the track testing um, and then, you know, later as TTT World Championships got closer with more, he came to a couple of the races and then we had some more camps in the lead up to Innsbruck World Championships. Um, I mean, obviously there's, there's attention to detail and like every every single detail that you could possibly iman- imagine and then even some that you cannot have imagined. So I think this was, um, I mean, the TTT was already a favourite discipline of the team and then he just joined with our um, our love of that discipline basically and so that that's what he brought into the team as well, his own passion for it and we did, together we just got even more excited about it. Um, and he just has a really nice meaner about him, the way he spoke to each of the riders uh, and the staff. He really brought them um, on board and immediately there was like a good rapport amongst everyone as well with Dan. I think that's important too because he's coming in with some ideas which a little bit are left left field as well sometimes. Yeah. Then if you if people believe and trust you, then you'll just go with it and, and, and um, everything worked out obviously. So he was looking at aerodynamics. He was, was he testing that on the track, on the road? Uh, on the on the track at the start, sorry, I'll start again. <laughs> so he was testing uh, first on the track, so basically looking at the positions of all of the riders with the current equipment that we were using. Um, and some some riders didn't make big changes in terms of their position, and other riders did make significant changes. Um, and also just looking at um, basically just trying to optimize the position um, and yeah. and educate the the riders. Um, once it, we found out what the course was at Innsbruck, you know what was going to be our strategy to to win. Basically, yeah. um, I mean, I, I remember doing a a video or creating like a small little video about the first track testing camp that he did, and you know asking him, you know, what are you hoping to achieve and I can remember it as clear as day. He distinctly said, well, I'm here to try to win the world championships at Innsbruck. And that was, you know, in September, so six months uh, ahead. Yes. And, I, and I really like when he said it, I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, yeah, in, so like there's kind of on the one hand, there's aerodynamics and then there's things like how the race actually, because he was involved, I think, in the actual race, the execution, how the race was put together, because this is kind of, well, in the book he wrote, he talks about this is reverse engineering, which is working backwards from the from the result you want. So he was involved then as well in actually putting together a strategy for for riding the race as well. Yeah, absolutely. He he really worked out the strategy, and we we gave full belief and trust into to Dan for that. And by then, we'd already been working with him for six months, and we'd had TTT camps in Innsbruck on the course. As much as you could with open roads um, for some of the for some of it, but we really just said, okay, you know, let's let's go with it. Everything that he um, he was doing, the team was getting better and better uh, as the season went on. So are we are we into things like rider order and pacing strategies and you know the the, the detail, the really kind of the fine details of this? Yeah, so I think at the, at the start he probably of the season he was looking at the position of riders on the bikes and optimising equipment and so forth. As mm. he got closer and closer to the actual race day, once he saw the courses, like, okay, what is the order um, and how, how long should the turns be at the front and when do people change or when do they not change, um, accounting, you know, what's the wind going to be like, uh, every, everything for that, you know, what gearing, what equipment yeah. the, the team should use as we got closer and closer to actual race day. And then, you know, during the race, I mean, he was in the race radio. Um, so he basically was the, you know, one of the, the masterminds on, let's say, on race yeah. day. Is there any, I always think it must be quite odd bringing in a, in, in a consultant to 
a team that's got a degree of kind of internal stability. Is that? It, it, I can also see that there are benefits from an outsider coming in and looking at things afresh, but it seems like a relationship that from a performance point of view, you have to handle quite carefully. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we already, as I said, uh, mentioned previously, we were, the team already had like quite a a nice Palmars in terms of the TTT. Yeah. Um, and so it was not that we, the the team, the riders, the staff, um, you know, it was not that we were completely lost or having no idea what to do really to try to win our world championships. Um, but basically bringing in someone who really matched that sort of passion and drive and the, and the real goal of trying to win the gold medal. Um, and then, yeah, it, it just sort of things fit in really well. And, you know, from the first time working with Dan, the, the way he works and the way he approaches things and the way he listens as well, it's not just that he comes in and immediately said, okay, I, I know what how to win and I'm the best and we do this, this, and it's not, you know, my way or the highway. Uh, he really just listened yeah. to listen to what the team already did. Um, the experience of the riders on, on race to who was better at the front, who was – uh, better in cornering who was better at the start what the order was the feedback yes. from the riders because they were they were the ones there racing um so yeah i mean it was an o- overall uh, approach and having him it, sorry go on. It, no, sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt i was gonna say it, it just seems quite brave because uh, this is kind of 2021 and we sort of you know if you haven't heard of dan bigham by now i don't know where you've been um but in 2018 that was mm-hmm picking a guy up out of a newspaper article or a magazine article somewhere and saying, well, this guy sounds interesting. Let's get that ship him over and get him to do a whole pile of work. That uh, sort of feels to me like that was quite a risk. Yeah, absolutely. But why not? I mean, I think that's also one of the things with the, with Canyon Storm Racing. We try to look at the sport, which is hugely traditional, but to try to look at it in a modern way and modern thinking and bring in new ideas. Um, you know, the team's done the Swift Academy as a form of a talent ID, which is a virtual game yeah. uh, and, and had success with it. So we're not, it's not foreign for us to try to look for different avenues and different paths to try to succeed. And so, and Dan finding him in a newspaper article and then it just worked out to be that yeah. the ideal um, partnership. Was there, really. was there any pushback from any of the writers or were they all on board? Uh, no, not at all, actually. <laughs> really? No, not at all. They're everyone, um, yeah, once, once, I think once they had met Dan himself um, and the way he worked and what he could bring to the team and how working with him was just going to make us stronger and better, I think everyone really got behind yeah. it as well. And I think that he, was a big difference. He was saying to me that he'd actually ridden with the, with the team, actually, in the string. And I thought, that's a very odd. You know, I can't think of anyone else who kind of swings in and does that most 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 people in sort of doing that job like to sit in the team car with a latte to hand and yeah exactly. radio it seems but, quite different to, to want to go bike riding yeah <laughs> but i also think that makes a big difference as well because the riders you know the 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 riders on our team i speak just from the riders from our team really they really enjoy when the the staff member whether it's the sport director or the in this case with dan to be there with them because then you then you when he's explaining what it feels like, for example, to take a, a corner in the extensions mm. or in the drops, then, you know, if they're there with him and they've seen him do it, then it's easier yeah. for them to follow that as well and vice versa. Then they can give feedback about something and, you know, he's usually a lot of the times when they were doing the TTT testing in Innsbruck, he was like video recording and GoProing. They were in line like six, uh, six or seven riders, depending how many were there. And they were doing a you know, 55, 65 Ks an hour and Dan was like going along beside them doing the GoPro. So I think that also was some of the riders were like really full gas and then looking and seeing Dan with a GoPro <laughs> just past them just for just purely because you wanted to get a different view or to feel it or to be able to show them what was happening. So different respect. The UCI, who we all admire and respect, um, I will say that first and foremost, just in case they're listening, um, and who chousered £3,000 of yours in order to let you even turn up with your bicycles to a race. And very wise they were to do so, if I may say. <laughs> They get a lot of, uh, they get an awful lot of crap for every time the UCI changes a rule, cycling Twitter goes bananas, um, and more or less never in the UCI's favour. But one of the things they do try to do 
not always successfully, but they do try to do it, is to maintain a kind of a level playing field to keep kind of costs reasonable. I'm not sure they do it the right way in that they try to stifle innovation by imposing rules that allegedly reduce the price of things. My feeling about it is that more or less every time they change the rules, they just create another window of opportunity for people with imagination and talent and money to exploit. Um, I don't know whether you agree with that or not. Yeah, I, I used to hate rule changes. Uh, it just creates more more headache, more work. But actually, most of the rule changes they've implemented have created a window of opportunity for performance benefits. And sometimes you just to give you a nudge of, okay, you designed this, now you're not allowed to do it like that. And you just, you because of all the lessons you learned in the old design process, you can apply those to the next one and often end up with a better product because of it. And our extensions have been a really good example of that, that we started in 2017. Yeah, the, the tri- tri- those kind of tri-bar extensions, the ones that mold nicely along onto the your, forearm. Onto your forearm. And yeah, yeah. we just constantly being pushed back of, okay, the 10 centimeter rule now is from the middle of the pad rather than the top of the pad. You can only run one layer of foam. It's got to be 40 mil by 40 mil. The, the armrest can only be 15 degrees. And all these rules that have just come in bit by bit by bit. Um, and you always think, okay, we're one step ahead, we're one step ahead. And I think to us now we've been painted into a corner of, okay, that's how it's going to be. And then you just move your effort elsewhere and, and wait for them to start chasing. But almost every time they change a rule relating to that, you've got an opportunity to redesign the product um, to maintain the advantage, critically to resell the product. <laughs> yeah, I guess that also helps. I do find that frustrating though. And it, it's something now when you're having to invest into a lot more tooling because the stuff we were making was relatively low volumes, whereas now people want people want more extensions, people want more handlebars. And you think, okay, well, we'll throw a few thousand pounds into tooling. And then who knows, two weeks later, the UCI go and change the rules and... Um, yeah, you've you've wasted your thousands of pounds on some tools yeah. to make something that's now UCI illegal, and I, I think a lot of handlebar manufacturers are a bit annoyed by it. Yeah, it really can can frustrate you as a manufacturer. It's not something I was too fussed about previously, but now when it's my own money, I'm referring into these things. It's not just people like Dan who have to deal with the way cycling's equipment rules seem to constantly shift. It's a stress and an expense for riders, for teams, mechanics, and even bike fitters. Most of us on this side of the sport have at least occasionally thought about travelling to the UCI headquarters in Switzerland and taking some hostages. However, this time, rather than do that, I thought I would talk to former UCI president Brian Cookson about it. So, Brian, just why do the rules keep changing? Well, I think they've changed a lot because the technology has changed a lot. The materials have changed. The understanding um, of the impacts of aerodynamics has changed. People like Dan have come along and really analysed in a much greater depth than was ever the case before. Um, you know, those kind of things that impact upon performance uh, on a bike. And at the same time, you know, sports science, sports medicine has evolved as well. So, you know, I think the governing bodies, uh, UCI, national federations and so on, have, have had to respond to that. And I think it's, you know, it's perhaps not surprising when someone like Dan is pushing up against the rules all the time that occasionally there's a bit of pushback and, and he gets uh, he gets frustrated and, and annoyed about, uh, about uh, innovations that are um, perhaps not being as as easily um, implemented in you know in competition as 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 he would like, and you know that's not specifically pointed at Dan. It's it, you know I'm, I'm making the the general point there, and you know I just think that um, cycling is probably unique in that it is in the extent to which it is both a technological sport and a physiological sport, and so you know the getting the balance between those two is what I think has driven the UCI um, historically and, and, and currently as well. So the, the primacy of the athlete and the athletic performance over the technology um, has always been something that the UCI has wanted to maintain. But at the same time, um, it's got to balance the evolving technology the the evolving understanding of the of the science and the physiology and, and sports medicine against all those things and and the newness thing the 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 the, the development thing is is a, an exciting and um and attractive part of the sport as well so so that can't be 
just put on one side and we saw what happens when you try and do that with the silly rules about the the hour record that you know that the put it in into um uh, in, into a sort of tablets of stone that you had to write a bite like eddie Merckx had done and so on and and that was just a futile pointless um exercise which in my time as uci president we just we just dropped that and said look if we're allowing bikes for the individual pursuit and the time trial um, with that, then then let's allow uh, the bike and the same rules as uh, for the hour record. And that actually restored um, inf- uh, a lot of interest in the hour record that, that you know, that, that had gone pretty stale in, in, uh, in, in recent times. I'm not at all critical of Dan. I, I love what he does. I think, it, you know, it's really interesting and, and to hear what he's doing. But, you know, when you are looking to to push the rules to find adaptations that allow you a competitive advantage in your team, your riders, the people that you're coaching, the people that you're working with, then it's not surprising that you sometimes come up against resistance and and misunderstandings and so on. Though, So, you know, I, I think the rules are pretty clear and, and I think the process is pretty clear. But... You know, sometimes that that goes down, and as you were saying, you know, to a commissaire who is perhaps a bit inexperienced and so on, to an event that's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, you've no one to refer to. You've you've got uh, you've got your books or you've got your stuff online as it now is, and, and so on. Um, you've never come across that before, and it can it can be difficult to make a snap decision. Um, you know, if if a team or a rider turns up with something that's outside your field of experience, and uh, you know, I can understand that. Uh, doesn't excuse people, uh, you know, enforcing a rule that doesn't exist. It sort of seems that it seems to, from, from my, to me, as having less of an engineering background than you, that the best thing the UCI could do is leave the rules alone. Because at that point, second-hand kit filters down to people and the performance difference between the first generation and the second generation of something like a handlebar extension within the same set of rules, the, the, the difference between those is not going to be huge. So it's easier for someone to compete on 10-year-old equipment if the rules stay the same. Yes, I do think they do well to just make one step towards objectifying the rules, make it about points and lines and, and measurements of a bike, whereas now it's, it's so subjective of... Things they say, like like we're talking about 1.3.033 of something about changing the body shape through tape or uh, I can't remember the exact rule. It's something like the clothing can't change the the shape of the rider, but of course it does. Or like the shoes can't influence the aerodynamics of the rider. But it's like you can't separate out shoes and shoe aero. They are inherent. You can't just hide the shoe from the airflow. It just It's not how physics are. You just need to have... It needs to fit in this box. It needs to have some of the limitations around it. So I think things like the the three to one or the cross sectional rules, stuff like that, are, are fairly sound and easy to do. And it's commonplace in motorsport that, put it simply, these are your legality boxes. This is the number of sections allowed in there. Crack on, do what you want to do. And then if there's something they don't like, you either ask for clarification or it gets changed the following year. And it refines and refines and refines. And I think that's probably the best way of going about it. But somebody's got to make a big leap from where we are now, where it's down to the commissaire on the day deciding if he likes likes the colour of your bike or not, through to something that's crystal clear. Yeah, I must admit, actually, the quality of quality of commissaring is not quite fair, but the rather erratic nature of commissaring is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really racing these days, so I'm not face-to-face with them. It really used to drive me absolutely bloody spare. <sighs> a couple of years ago, I had a... A full-on slanging match with one in track center and i don't think that was a wise thing um but yeah I, I, I just i went off the off the the rail and i'd had enough they didn't know the rule i was like you're trying to do i can't remember what it was it skin suits or something either way they were trying to ban us or something it's like that's not the rule show me the rule and they're like no you can't run that i was like show me the rule it's not there's not a rule and they're like no no it is how it is i'm like no if it's in the not in the rule book you can't you can't do that uh, it's, but then there's not even like an appeal procedure. You can't race under appeal or anything like that that you could normally do in, in motorsport. It's um, it's lacking, I should say. No, it, it's it certainly has. It's always been it's always been frustrating, um, and partly that is because the rules keep changing. 
Um, so yeah, I feel slightly sorry for commissaires, particularly at a time trial, because most, most commissaires probably only commissaire a time trial every two years or something. Um, yeah. It's not a regular part of their gig, and they're suddenly face-to-face the night before with reading through however all the regulations have changed since the last time we did it. But anyway, this is a very abstruse... <laughs> you, know, you and I could do kind of UCI, a UCI commissaring podcast sometime where we can go through all the rows we've had with commissaires. Um, but... Um, I mean, one, one kind of question, not quite a final question, because I'll have to wrap it up with something a bit more about cycling. One of the things that genuinely interests me about Formula One, actually, because Formula One is always kind of taken in any kind of sports engineering. It's always regarded as the gold standard. The same way that for so many things, it's NASA. And Formula yeah. One is, is, is the gold standard. It interests me that in spite of the, the, the innovation and the brains and everything else that happens in F1, it's still the big teams with lots of money that win nearly everything. Mm. Yeah, but then they can afford the brightest minds, the best athletes, the best equipment. They can afford to not take a sponsorship deal for a certain component if they think it's going to limit them. Um, and I think that's often... I always used to have a laugh and a joke at the fact that most World Tour teams seem to sort of limit themselves in different areas so much that performance was largely levelled at the top. Um, but I don't think that's so much the case now, which is why a few teams are sort of ploughing forward where you've got basically Ineos, Jumbo, um, a couple of others who are sort of in the mix, uh, whereas the outsiders are so far behind. But it sort of it sort of pushes against kind of what a lot of what we've talked about, about the opportunity to be innovative and be nimble. And you say, well, that's fine, but here's, here's Mercedes Grand Prix squashing the little people again. Mm. Um, but in cycling, I think it comes down to the mindset that not so much are the little guys struggling because they're little. I... My opinion, anyway, maybe it's maybe it's tarring everyone with the with this, the same brush. Is that they're probably just stuck in the old school dogma of the sport. And you look at the background of, of those teams, how long they've existed, even down to like who's calling the shots. And often it will be a mechanic who's deciding the tire pressure or deciding uh, what wheels to run that day. And can you imagine that in Formula One, the mechanics going, it's this tire pressure and this wing setting, and then the race engineers and all the simulation guys and even the driver going, what? But I, d- I don't want to run that. And then go, nope. Today, you've got 130 PSI in your tubs. And they go, but I wanted to run clinches at 80. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, are you, um, when are you planning to move on from being a bike rider and, and achieve your sort of true destiny as the engineering guru <laughs> of cycling? Because um, there is certainly an opinion um, among some people in the senior echelons of cycling that you shouldn't be riding a bike at all. You should be a full-time engineer. Is that the direction you're going to go in before too long? Bearing in mind you've won, a, you've, won a, you've won a World Championships medal, you've won a Commonwealth medal, you're a multiple national champion. You know, it's not like you're a bad bike rider. Um, but is that is that where you go next? I've had this discussion quite a bit with a lot of different people, from my partner Joss through to yeah some of the top guys in the sport, guys and girls in the sport. And uh, I don't know. I, I think the problem is I keep finding really cool races and really cool projects to get my teeth stuck into as an individual of like, oh, that's like the hour record. And I know I can't, I've been going on about this for the years now. And that, yeah, the plan was to have it wrapped up by now and to have taken Bradley Wiggins British British hour record um but yeah for many reasons it's, it's not not been achieved yet but um it's just like such a fun project that I don't want to just sack it in and say oh but I could have done that I could have at least had a go and put a marker down uh I guess yeah that day will probably come in the next year or two but in the meantime there's still a few things that I just want to want to check off as, a, as an athlete before I uh yeah move across and one of, one of those being the R record yeah, the hour. It's I I did one back in 2014. You probably you might have remembered it on an outdoor velodrome in a cold day in March, and um, I think it did 46.9. I want to say 46.8, 46.9. Um, power meter definitely overread by about probably 100 watts, <laughs> something stupid like that. Um, <laughs> you think back, you're like, I can't do that for an hour now. What's going on? Um, but it just so happens that your CDA is about 40% better. But anyway, um, that's uh, by the point. So, yeah, it's just been a fun project from a personal optimization because I've learned so much over the past few years from every aspect of performance, not just the engineering, the aerodynamics, the positioning that has continually progressed me, but also physiologically, I'm still getting better as an athlete. 
and especially the last 12 to 18 months, I've, I've made a big leap forward. Um, I've changed coaches. I've had COVID in my favor, meaning I can't travel around the world every five days. That suddenly means you've got consistency in your training and recovery and just general lifestyle. So if I'm getting better and my equipment's getting better, then I think I'd be a bit silly to stop before I've kind of hit that plateau and probably on the other on the on the way down. Um, but it's just being careful not to miss too many big opportunities as an engineer because they do they do come by quite often. There's a lot of people say, "Oh, you can get involved in this or get involved in that or design this or design that," and it's deciding how I spend my time and, and effort. And I do struggle with that. I, I, I wrote about it in the book of when you've got 25 goals, bin off all the bottom ones and focus on the few at the top. But unfortunately, there's always ones just trying to come in and that, that top five becomes 10 and suddenly you're spreading yourself far too thin and not doing what you should be doing. Perhaps the most striking thing about a conversation with Dan is the way that you ask a question about aerodynamics. I get an answer that starts with that, but finishes in physiology. Or a psychology question becomes a pacing strategy answer. His instinct is to see how it all joins up on how one element can optimise another. It's probably unique in cycling at the minute, and possibly unique in sport. It seems ridiculous that only at the very end of the conversation do we really touch on his plans to break Brad Wiggins' UKR record, something that for most riders would have been a whole show. I'm genuinely fascinated to see what Dan does next. I don't know what it'll be, but I know it's going to be interesting. My thanks to Dan and to Beth DeRea and to Brian Cookson. My thanks to you for listening, and I very much hope you find a few things you can take away and use for yourself. And as ever, my thanks to Cycling Weekly magazine for supporting the show. You just heard a stripped media production. 